synchronicities, flow states, um, why the law of attraction works for some people doesn't seem to work for others, or why it works sometimes and why it doesn't work. All the authentic self and how to do that, and uh, <clears throat> to follow up on some of my previous videos. So anyway, I'm going to let it breathe here for a minute, see if I can get the chats to come up here, and see if anybody jumps on. Hope everybody's doing okay out there. So I was thinking about this this week, <clears throat> just reflecting back on my own experiences in my own life, uh, having times where synchronicities happened. Um, synchronicity is a concept, at least the way I'm using it, talking about it, is a concept that comes out of Jungian um, metaphysics, Carl Jung's belief about how the world was structured and Carl Jung's theories of psychology. I, I know there are people out there that think that Carl Jung is completely outdated. Um, he's not really taught in schools of psychology anymore at higher levels of learning. Um, you kind of get a brief overview and introduction of psychology and that kind of thing, maybe an elective course or something that you can take. And so that leads people to believe that Carl Jung's theories are just outdated because they were proven wrong or science hasn't supported the things that Carl Jung um, talked about or taught. And there is truth to that, um, not that it's necessarily outdated uh, or that science doesn't support it. It's just that science never really looked at it or studied it. Um, again, Carl Jung's writing and theorizing and doing his work at the early part of the uh, 20th century and it was before, you know, scientific materialism really took over as a belief system. And so the problem that a lot of psychology has with Carl Jung is that he doesn't fit their model or their mold. And there are a lot of people in the academies in psychology that do psychological research and stuff that feel like they are sort of the uh, third or fourth cousin to the sciences considered a humanities, considered a lesser thing by the elitists that hold to scientific materialism. And so, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think if you go back and look at his work, look at the results, match it with your own experiences. Um, now, granted, he's also very difficult to understand. <laughs> so, you know, I've read a lot of his stuff uh, directly and original source material, in other words, stuff that he wrote. But I also find it helpful to read scholars who really understand Carl Jung and Carl Jung's thinking. So to break it down, basically, Carl Jung would say that we have two levels of experience that are very self-evident. We have the inward experience of our mind, our ego, our conscious mind, our subconscious mind, what he called the unconscious mind, came to be called the subconscious mind, <clears throat> and then the collective unconscious. So that's like our internal world. And then we have the external world, the world, the objective world, the world out there, the world that is other than us. And so the way he would define synchronicity is when we would make contact with something inside of us, an intuition, a feeling, an intention, uh, a dream, the thought of something occurring or happening, and then either simultaneously or shortly thereafter, having this intuition, this thought, this inner movement of the soul, you might call it, something would show up in the external world that would match the thought or the intuition or the belief. So you would think about someone and they would call you, someone you haven't heard of, heard from in a long time, and they would call you. Or he wouldn't even make it so simple in some of his illustrations as to say, you're thinking of a red car and you walk around the corner and there is a, a red car sitting there right in front of you. So that would be this idea of synchronicities when something in the inner world seems to precognitively show up inside you and then match, uh, the match comes in the external world. 
so it's a little bit like the law of attraction. I want to talk about this because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about the law of attraction. I think a lot of people get frustrated because they don't see it working because this, uh, this concepts that we're going to talk about today are not really talked about in the LOA law of attraction community. <clears throat> but Carl Jung was talking about this back in the early 1900s. It's a phenomenon that he was exploring and, and really addressing from an academic perspective. And so I know there, there have been many times in my life, as I look back over my life, where something would just click on the inside. Something would shift or change. I, I think we can all relate to this. Like there's, there's times when we're in or that I've been in, <clears throat> and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Uh, what I call a flow state, <laughs> which is something shifts or changes on the inside. An idea, uh, comes, um, I change an approach. I forgive an offense. Um, it could be anything, it could be anything, but there's a shift that happens on the inside and there's just a, there's just a sense of ease. There's a sense of release. There's a sense of yieldedness to it. And usually this happens for me when something new is presenting itself and I'm making a decision that will affect or impact the course of my life. So it could be a decision like when I went back to school or it could be a decision um, to close the church building that we had, or it could be a decision to move or to buy a house or something like that, something that, that's generally significant. And there have been times where I would make this decision, set this intention, say yes to going this direction, giving a good quality yes, right? And things would just open up. The path would just open up. Uh, meet the right person, get the right connection for the new job, uh, <clears throat> come into sums of money that I would need to do what it was that I wanted to do or what it was that I was feeling to do. And it was almost like magic, right? But it, there was an ease to it. There was a grace and an ease and a, and a flow to it. So in other words, what I'm saying is these types of experiences don't require, never required back when I was in the Christian system, never required a lot of intense spiritual warfare of praying and walking the floor and making decrees or, um, you know, uh, a lot of prayer and wrestling and struggling and, hey, you know, would you pray for me about this? And would you guys agree with me about that? And it didn't require a lot of what we're taught in the law of attraction stuff of, you know, sitting there and imagining it and creating it and generating the feeling and putting it out in the quantum field. And not that there's anything wrong with that stuff. I mean, I did do that stuff as well in other areas of my life where I experienced breakthroughs and where I, I had things that were happening, stuff like that. But um, this would be more like a small shift, uh, setting, of an, setting of an intention, and then just seeing what opens up in life. And it just happens. So there's, there's no laboring. There's no resistance. There's no resistance internally. And consequence, consequently, there's no resistance from life for those things coming in and happening, if that makes sense to you. There are other times, though, right, when... I've wanted to go a direction. I've wanted to do something where there's just been a ton of resistance. There's just been a ton of pushback. Every time I would take one step forward, it would seem like life or the universe or it just wasn't cooperating. The external just wasn't cooperating and I would get pushed back. So I take one step forward and get pushed back two steps or three steps, fall up, fall down, get back up, take one step forward, get pushed back, fall down again. And it would seem like the thing that I was desiring, the thing that I was wanting, the direction that I was wanting to go, like there was just incredible resistance. It's just like, so, so when you're in that flow state, you have an internal, uh, experience of ease and grace and the universe sort of opens it up and externally it matches, right? There's an ease and a grace. Things just show up. These synchronicities, these fortunate serendipitous events just kind of start opening up and happening. 
And it's not because, I want to make this clear, it is not because, it's not a cause and effect thing. That's what I want to make clear. It's not cause and effect in the sense that we're taught in law of attraction stuff where, oh, okay, I have grace and ease on the inside, and so that's creating for me in a causal sort of way grace and ease. It's putting it on the universe, so the universe is responding to my um, state of being. It's more like it's matching my state of being. Like the two are in harmony, the two are in sync, synchronicity. The two are synchronized. It's not my thoughts and emotions are causing that, and the universe is reflecting it to me. I don't believe that. Now, there are other times when it maybe doesn't even really matter what the interior state is. It could be grace and ease on the inside or peace on the inside, or it could be turmoil on the inside and the universe is just pushing back constantly and nothing is working or happening or playing out. So what's going on and how do we, how do we look at this and how do we create for ourselves more of those types of flow states, more of those types of synchronicities, more of that grace and ease in our life. So things come to us. So part of this, part of the explanation for this goes into a little bit of of Jung's metaphysical ideas. And it traces back all the way back to ancient Greek philosophies that presuppose that all is consciousness, all is mind. Now, again, I want to be really clear when I'm using the word Consciousness, or I'm using the word mind. I am not negating matter or material uh, reality. And I'm not negating, I'm not using mind as a way to break apart the human being so that I'm only talking about your cognitions or I'm only talking about your logic or your reason or your analytical thinking. When I'm using the term mind, or consciousness, I'm talking about the ability, all ability to perceive experiences. All ability to perceive experiences. So without that, <laughs> you have nothing. You, you, you and I are each a point of consciousness. I've talked about this a lot, right? Like I'm me and you're you, and I've got what goes on inside of my world. And everywhere my body goes, I am experiencing time and space based on being in this body. And I'm filtering my experiences through my uniqueness, right? Through what's made me, me. And you're doing the same thing. So I just want to be really clear. That's the philosophical idea that in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, or that everything is consciousness and everything else is a manifestation or an emanation or a result of how consciousness presents itself to us. Now, if scientific materialism was true and our consciousness, our experience of the experience is merely the result of an evolutionary accident that our brains developed over time, based on survival, uh, and it's just the byproduct of matter, then everything, there is no organization to life that can give you an explanation for synchronicities. Another phenomenon I've been looking at that's really interesting is a, a term called retrocausality. You can look it up. There's been a lot of experiments done on what's called retro-causality. And it's it's a hard concept to grasp because it completely defies everything we know about physics and everything we know about cause and effect. If you think about the word retro means to go back and causality means to have a cause. And so they've done all kinds of experiments where they have done things after something has taken place 
and then measured the results. And the results seem to indicate that what was done after the event happened impacted the results of the event, even though the event had already taken place. So, for example, what they would do is they might give a vocabulary test to a group of people. So they might take a group of 50 students and or 100 students, break them up into two different groups. 50 students they're going to give the vocabulary test to, and they're going to take it cold. They don't know what the words are. They're just going to hand them a test, and they're going to take it. But this group of 50 people is going to commit to studying the vocabulary words for 30 days after they take the test. This is where I lose people when I try to explain it. Not before they take the test. They don't know the words before they take the test. They're going to take the test. They're going to write in the definitions on this vocabulary test. They're going to turn it in, and that grade is going to be given to them in that moment. And then they're going to study the vocabulary words for the next 45 days. In the control group, they're just going to take the vocabulary test and get their results, and they'll agree, say, not to study those words at all. And then after the 45 days, they're going to compare the results of the two groups. And the amazing thing is, and this has been very replicable in many, many different studies done many different ways. The amazing thing is, is that always the group that studies after they take the test has higher scores. When they initially get the test back, they score higher above what can be considered chance or something that would match with what you would expect in terms of statistical reasonableness. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying? Or they might do it with a spelling test. Or they even did one with uh, prayer for people that were in the hospital. They didn't tell them, uh, you know, they, they, they picked a condition that was terminal or they, they picked ICU groups uh, where the results had already been determined about who was going to get better, who was going to get out of ICU, how fast they were going to get out of ICU, who was going to die, who was going to live. And they would take a group and say, these people are currently in ICU. So there's a little bit of deception there, which you have to do. It's called a blind study. Uh, and they would be praying for the people on their list. And then they'd take a control group and they'd say, don't pray, don't think, don't do anything for these people. And lo and behold, you, you know, maybe they just did this for 30 days. And these people went to ICU two years ago, and the results were already established, right? And so what they would discover is that the group that got prayed for <laughs> did better. These are real scientific studies. It's called retrocausality. You can look it up. Now, if scientific materialism is true, if the law of physics as we know them is true, that makes no sense. And again... This is something that has been replicable, which is really hard for science to do. We talk about science being observable, measurable, and repeatable, but the repeatable part is 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 suspect. (laughs) So you have this thing of precognition, and you have this thing of retrocausality, or you have this thing of you aligning with something internally in your consciousness, and then the world aligning with it and matching that and showing up for you in your life. And (laughs) scientific materialism doesn't provide any explanation, can't even provide a theory on how those things happen. But if all is mind or all is consciousness or all is connected and everything that we experience is just the manifestation. It's the shape or form that consciousness takes. So matter materialism is the shape and form that consciousness takes, right? It's not separate from it. It's not dualistic. Uh, your point of consciousness is a repres- is a manifestation and an emanation that consciousness or mind takes in time and space in this body and in this life. Then all of these things become possible and explainable, at least with a good theory. Does that make sense to you? So one of the things I find so interesting about Carl Jung is that he predicted the rise of the Nazi Party in Germany. And he predicted World War II a couple of decades before it happened. 
uh, if you think about it, I think uh, like in 1919, he started writing about this, uh, that there was coming a, a war in Europe and he was, uh, talking about a, uh, rise of fascism specifically in Germany. And so you would think, well, he just understood the mind. He understood consciousness. He understood the unconscious so well that he could read the tea leaves, so to speak. He could, he could see it coming because he could see, he, he knew how the mind works, but that wasn't his testimony. And he even says it in places where he says people, you know, think that's how I was able to predict the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. He said, I was able to predict the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. You ready for this? This is so interesting because a lot of what Carl Jung did was dream analysis. He was a depth psychologist. He was a psychoanalyst, but he did a lot of work with dreams with his clients because that was his doorway into what was going on in the subconscious. And he worked with a lot of German people and a lot of German speaking people. And so in fact, most of his clients and patients at that time were, and so what he says is, is he says that it was showing up over and over again in the dreams of the German people. That they, they would have dreams about fascism. They would have dreams about Nazism. They would have dreams about war and uh, cataclysmic type events. And this is back in, you know, a couple decades before the rise of Hitler. So, What's going on? There, there, there was something going on in the collective unconscious of the German speaking people that they could anticipate what was coming or they could see what was coming before it happened. So again, this violates our normal ideas of time and space and cause and effect and the world in here and the world out there. And that to me gives them a lot of credibility. So that's, a little bit of a philosophical basis. That's Carl Jung. My own experiences certainly match that where I've been able to predict events before they happen or like I said, been able to get into this flow state and also not be in the flow state <laughs> experience both. And so what's the difference? What's, what's going on and what's happening here? So what, what Carl Jung would say, and this resonates with me so strongly, is that you have to make contact with your soul. You have to make contact with your authentic self. You have to make contact with something inside first. And most of us don't spend enough time in meditation. Most of us don't spend enough time in quiet. Most of us don't spend enough time in solitude. Most of us don't spend enough time in self-reflection that we ever really contact that authentic self. So this is where I want to get into what I talked about in the last couple of weeks. We have an authentic self that for most of us throughout our lives has been silenced. It's been made to shut up. Uh, some people could call this the inner child. And we'll talk about this process again and how this happens. So our authentic self becomes still and small and quiet and stilled inside. As we go through life and we begin to manufacture and create an ideal self, we have an ideal self. And I really want to emphasize that this is the person that I want to be. If I could be my ideal self, I would have this, this, this and this. And this is where, like with law of attraction teachers and stuff, people get into so much. It's like you're working against yourself because they'll ask you, what what does your ideal day look like? Um what is your ideal job? What is your ideal version of yourself? Now, imagine yourself as this idealized version of yourself. Uh, feel the feeling of what it would feel like to be this idealized version of yourself. But that idealized version was is a hand-me-down self. It's a second-hand self. It's the self that we learned to live in in order to get our needs met as children. And, and not, not just our needs in the home, not just like basic food and shelter, but to get our emotional needs met, to get our social needs met, to get our needs for acceptance met, uh, to get, and, and then it, it just carries on throughout life. What do you want to be when you grow up? That should be an authentic internal answer that comes from within you. But more often than not, 
we get, we lose that very early on, usually, and that voice begins to shut up. You know, we get embarrassed, uh, we get punished. We're, we're our authentic self as a child and we get punished in the home. That's not acceptable. We're like this. If you're a Tomlinson, you act this way. Uh, you do these things, right? We don't do those things. So it gets shamed. It gets punished. And the idealized self, the self that's being handed to you from your parents, that's the self that gets rewarded. We call bringing up a child in the way that they should go. And when they are, are, yeah, raise up a child in the way that they should go. So when they are old, they'll not depart from it, right? That's a recipe for handing an idealized self. It's my, it's my job to shape and mold their character. Yes, to a degree. It is my job to raise them, but I want to make sure that I'm raising the authentic them. But more often than not, what happens is we hand an idealized self over and we punish and shame the authentic self. So the authentic self, through punishment and shame and trauma, goes quiet. And then it happens in school. We try to express ourselves in some way. Uh, I remember uh, my son had a hoodie that he just absolutely loved. He had a way that he wanted to dress and express himself. And the first thing he did when he went to public school, uh, one day he got made fun of because the hoodie he was wearing, and he put that hoodie away and never wore it again. No amount of encouragement from us could uh, could could get him. You know, he, he used to like to dress with, like, lots of color and, and stand out. And now he wants to, you know, just wear black hoodies and gray stuff and just just to fit in, right? So, I mean, it's a very simple example, but you can see how, the authentic self is saying, hey, I want to present myself this way. And then there's this embarrassment, there's this shaming, there's this mocking and being made fun of in the context of school. And so that authentic self says, oh, if I speak up, if I express myself the way I want to, it it causes me pain, it causes me humiliation, it causes me shame. So the authentic self, but the ideal self, the ideal self will fit in. The ideal self will wear what everybody else is wearing. The ideal self will go along with the crowd because if I go along with the crowd, then I'm presenting a self that gets accepted. Same thing can happen in dating. If I want to be able to date the person that I want to date or go out with the kind of person I want to go out with, then I have to present myself as a certain way so that they'll like me. And the goal is to get the... The, the girl, the guy, the, the them, whatever it might be, right? And so now I'm presenting that idealized self to that person because I want to be with that person. I'm trying to get my emotional and social needs met. And if I do something <clears throat> embarrassing, if I do something, and we've all had that. We've all had, like, that loss of first love. And I'm not talking about <clears throat> your high school girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm talking about in kindergarten or fourth or fifth grade, you go up and hand uh, the person you had uh, feelings for a Valentine and she shows her friends and they all laugh at you. <laughs> and so they're shame. Oh, see, I can't express my authentic self. So eventually those voices grow very, very silent and that self gets lost and we live the ideal self. And then we beat up on ourselves through shame and guilt and condemnation for not being that idealized self. And we try to motivate ourselves to become more like that idealized self. And this is the entire self-help industry and maybe even law of attraction industry. Like, like just how to, how to improve yourself. And the way most people are going to process that is how to better present more authentically as the idealized version of myself. So, and in Christianity, we did this with every aspect of life, right? And we emphasized it has to come from your heart. You know, if you're doing actions, but it's not coming from your heart, if you're giving and tithing, but it's not coming from your heart, God's not going to bless you. And so we don't tell people don't give and don't tithe because it's not in your heart. I actually did. But a lot of people don't do that. What they try to do is get their heart into it. So instead of just letting out the authentic self, I'm trying to authenticate the idealized self. So I'm going to say that again because I think that's really powerful. Is your approach to self-help? Is your approach to therapy? Is your approach to self-improvement? Is your approach to listening to this, you know, podcast or live podcast and things like this? Are you doing that out of the authentic self or are you doing that to authenticate the idealized self. And I would venture to guess that a vast majority of people 
are trying to use spiritual principles and law of attraction and new age teachings and things like that to authenticate the idealized self that they have of themselves. And your idealized self could be anything. It could be that I'm, I'm very intelligent. So I want to present myself as very intelligent. It could be that I, um, <clears throat> I'm an entrepreneur. And so I want to present myself as an entrepreneur. Or it could be any number of things, right? It could be that I'm a good person. I'm a good and moral, honest person with integrity. And I want to present myself in the best way possible as a good, honest, moral person with integrity, right? It could be any of those things. The problem is it's still working the hand-me-down self. It's still working the, this is the false self, the, this idealized self that we've internalized and made our own self. <laughs> and, and, and we can be confused on the inside. In fact, most of the time we are confused on the inside. And that's why I said that this work requires meditation. It requires solitude. It requires being quiet. It requires, uh, self-reflection. Because we can be confused. Which, which self are we right now? Or is it a mixture? It's not always, it's not always an either or. Sometimes it's a mixture. Sometimes there is an element of the authentic self that's speaking and there's an element of the idealized self that is speaking. And sometimes they're synchronized and sometimes they're battling with each other. And so I've got this warfare going on on the inside of me. Do I want this or do I want that? It could be that my authentic self wants to go a certain direction and my idealized self is afraid to go that direction because when they went that direction in the past, the idealized self knows when we went this direction in the past, it caused us pain. And so it can be like, well, part of me wants this, but I'm afraid of that. Part of me wants this, part of me doesn't want that because it's a mixture and it's not really clear even to ourselves whether we're presenting our authentic self or whether we're presenting our idealized self. <laughs> so the key, and Jung brings this out, and this sober witness with me, is when life has worked well for me, when I've been in that flow state, has been when, and the reason there was grace and ease on the inside, were the times that I was able to contact very deeply the authentic self and make a decision to live and act out of that authentic self. And the idealized self gets in the way. I remember reading a quote from, it was either Jung or it was someone who studied Jung, and said that there are times in life when you have to make a choice between being good or being whole, being integrous, integer, one, being good or being whole. And that's that battle and that struggle we have. The idealized self always wants to be good, but sometimes that leaves us fragmented. In fact, it frequently leaves us fragmented. It leaves us alienated and separated and cut off from ourselves. And so sometimes we have to sacrifice the good for wholeness. We have to sacrifice good goodness for authenticity. And when you find and contact and connect with that authentic self, then you express that, you move out from that, you live your life from that place. Those are the times that synchronicities match. So how do we know? How do we know if we're living the idealized self or the authentic self or the two are enmeshed? How do we know if we're in a flow state? or if we're going to get resistance from the universe. And Carl Jung would say, well, you know it by the signs following around you. In other words, when you start paying attention and those patterns start showing up in the natural, I'm feeling something, thinking something, and... I get little signals from the universe. I get little matches. I think about a red car and a red car shows up. It doesn't, doesn't have to be something as dramatic as a check comes in the mail or you meet the, the, you know, your soulmate or, um, <clears throat> you suddenly have this amazing job opportunity that opens up. I mean, those things will happen, but 
it's just little signs and symbols that you're on the right path. Give you an example. When we moved at one point in our ministry, we moved um, to a new location and we were looking and we were trying to buy and we were trying to decide what was going to be the best location for us and was it the right move. And at the same time, um, I began to uh, just get, get this thing in my inside me about um, the symbol of the dove in scripture. So I'm studying doves, not just, you know, from the perspective of the dove is the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that simplistic for me. Um, I was looking at the dove from the Song of Solomon, uh, the doves that Noah sent out, um, every place in scripture that a dove would show up. And it began to shift. Things also began to shift in terms of um, how I was preaching and some of the supernatural stuff that we were experiencing in the church and stuff at the time. And the next thing I know, um, a family of ring neck doves move in to our backyard. <laughs> and we'd gone to this building, shown this building several times. And to be honest with you, I was looking for doves on that property because I had, I had attuned myself to looking for signs. And none of the times that I had ever gone out to that property had I seen doves. Now, I know the people who are more rationally minded, more analytical, scientific materialists, this sounds childish and silly and maybe even a little bit flaky, but I don't care. That's where I was at at the time. And... I remember we went and we closed on the building. We had just signed the papers and I was driving home and on my way home, every time I would drive home, I would drive past the building and the property that we bought. And I look over at the building and the property thinking that belongs to the ministry now. That's going to be the new home for the ministry. And lo and behold, there's a dove sitting on the roof. (laughs) There's a ringneck dove. And when we go our first Sunday, there was a family of ringneck doves that had moved in and built their nest or something somewhere on the property. So that every time we showed up, there were doves. And that was a time when things were just flowing. Things were just easy. Uh, things were just, just happening. It was a time of grace and, e- grace and ease. You see what I'm saying? So it doesn't have to be the miracle happened, the thing you were believing for. The, you know, it's none of that. It's just little things like that. Like I've been fascinated with doves. I've been studying doves. Oh, now there's ringneck doves showing up at my house. We bought a building. Now there's a dove abiding on the building at the very moment that I'm driving by after I signed the papers. The first Sunday that we have a service, we notice there's a family of doves. I'd been looking for doves before when we had been there. We'd shown it to several people uh, over a couple-month time period when we were trying to, to decide on which building to buy. I'd been to look at it a number of times had driven by it a number of times, had walked around the property before, never seen the doves before. But after we, you know, purchased the building, there are doves. And so it's looking for that kind of stuff. That's what that's what Carl Jung would say is synchronicities. And so the way you can know if you are in a flow state, if you're manifesting from your authentic self, is by noticing the patterns and the synchronicities and the signs that are, showing up in your life around you as you're doing those things. And if that's not happening and you're feeling some struggle on the inside or the universe is pushing back everywhere that you want to go, that's your signal. That's your moment. That's your message, if you will, to realize Okay, I need to, my consciousness, something in here needs to shift again. Something in here needs to change. I need to do some work in here and I need to figure out what it is. I need to find out what it is because I'm not manifesting my soul's purpose. And I'm not saying soul's purpose in a way to put you in bondage and servitude like religion did. All right. But, uh, I'm not listening. I'm not hearing that still small voice on the inside. And so I need to do some work on the inside so that things will uh, begin to fall in line and in place for me on the outside. This is uh, uh, my variation 
of Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, do the inner interior work first and get aligned in in here first. And when the lines fall in pleasant places for you in here, they'll begin to fly, fall in pleasant places out here. And you'll begin to notice it and there'll begin to be a match and things will begin to show up in your life. And it's not a struggle. You're not sitting there every night trying to imagine your perfect day and make it happen working the law of attraction because you're living from that authentic self. You're living from that soul voice. Now, how Gus Grader, but how do we do that again? Being quiet, meditating. Now, meditation isn't for everybody. It depends. Everybody's different, right? But You've got to be able to find for you what works on the inside. So this isn't a formula, you know. I mean, seriously, meditation can be unhealthy for some people, especially if they've been traumatized a lot. And so that's really where a lot of the work has to take place. Because remember that your inner child, this is your inner child that we're talking about. Your inner child got shamed uh, for... I don't know, uh, getting too excited about, uh, an event that was coming up, getting too excited about going to the carnivore or the circus or the vacation or Disneyland or whatever. And your parents having a rough time and, you know, settle down. Why are you always so hyper? Why, why don't you just settle down and, or sit down and shut up, right? Okay. Oh, that part of me needs to be silenced. Um, I express myself through my dress like my son did the way I wanted to and I got made fun of. Oh, there's, I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. Oh, that part comes here. So my inner child keeps receiving this, keeps withdrawing, keeps being quieted, right? And, oh, I gave, you know, this person a Valentine on Valentine's Day and they, they shunned me and made fun of me or, um, I did this and they posted about it in a Snapchat group and I got made fun of, um, and so all that stuff, there's so much shame that the authentic self carries. There's so much, again, shame. And those, you know, your inner self can be so, your inner child is carrying all of those experiences, right? And so in order to live this kind of life that I'm talking about, you're going to have to unpack some of that stuff with your inner child. And if I were to say, how do I know when I'm in that place? It feels playful. It feels playful. It feels fun. It feels curious. And so it's not, again, I just, I I can't get over this story with Elijah. When Elijah slays the prophets and the next day, Jezebel sends messengers. And remember last week I said, we think that's, you know, human messengers. We think she sent soldiers that said, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to have your head on a platter, basically, my translation. But it doesn't have to be read literally. Like, we get these messengers that tell us, uh, if you do that, you're going to die. If you express your true self, you're going to die. And so the true self, you know, the authentic self goes running. Elijah goes running into a cave and he's suicidal. He's despairing of his life. And then God brings him out and there's this really loud wind. And it says, but God wasn't in the wind. And then the earthquakes and shakes and it says, but God, God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a fire and it says, but God wasn't in the fire. Then it says he wrapped his head in his mantle. And then a still small voice began to speak. And when that still small voice began to speak, he began to redefine Elijah's purpose. He began to repurpose him. Uh, I want you to go back and I want you to anoint Jehu, I think it was, to be king. I want you to anoint Elisha to stand as a prophet in your place. Uh, I think there were three things in there that the still small voice told him to do. So I'm using that story as a metaphor, not to say you have to get back into allowing a God outside of you to define your reality. But I am saying that I do think we have a soul code. We have a soul purpose. S 
S-O-U-L, not S-O-L-E. <laughs> our purpose, our, our, our soul, our inner child, our authentic self was silenced. And so we have to give space for that still small voice to speak. And we have to be careful that the idealized self doesn't come along because of what will happen. The idealized self or the inner critic will come along and we'll start critiquing and analyzing and judging the still small voice, the voice of the inner child, the voice of the authentic self when it speaks. Um, so a better thing to ask when you're. on what is it that I really desire? What is it that I really want? Number one, you have to give yourself space. You have to honor yourself. You have to honor your desires. You have to honor who you are. And so you start asking that question. And what you need to look for when you start getting those answers from within, from the inside, what you need to begin to look for there is, is this authentic? Is this authentic? Not is this good? Is this bad? Will this bring me trouble or not? I mean, we can, you can address those things later, but you just have to be really honest. Is this an authentic thing? And then let it speak a little bit louder and let it speak a little bit louder. And then you can make a decision whether or not you want to, you want to follow that. And so there's a number of ways to do that. Number one, you've got to shut down any fear of judgment. You've got to go into the places where you feel shame, where you feel embarrassment, where you feel trauma. And you might want to do this with a therapist because what you don't want to do if you have a lot of trauma is to try to unpack that by yourself because you can get lost in that trauma. You can literally walk around in an open trauma. So I would say, Try to work with a trauma-informed therapist if you can. Um, but even just a close friend that will hold space for you will work as well. Um, and I'm not trying to scare you off from doing that kind of work. I'm just sensitive to the fact that if you've had a lot of trauma, um, you might need some some guidance and some help from someone who's trauma-informed. Um, <clears throat> so that's the first thing. So you, this is something you could do. You know, therapy could be part of this for you. Meditation, quiet, solitude, listening. But for some people, it's going for a walk in nature. You know, sometimes just getting in touch with the world around you puts you, synchronizes you. It doesn't always have to be inner work first. Sometimes it's just going out and getting synchronized with nature and getting synchronized with the world around you will open up that inner voice. Doing something that you used to enjoy as a child might open up that inner voice for you. So sitting down with a coloring book and coloring might open up that inner voice for you. Or um, for you, it might be automatic writing where you just sit down and without editing anything, you just start putting out all your thoughts on paper. Um, it could be if you are a religious person, it could be through some kind of religious ritual that you that you do. The important thing is that you find for you what's going to bring you into that place of freedom on the inside and help you work through all the shame and stuff that you inherited that caused your inner self to become silenced. But I'm convinced that doing this kind of inner work is the key to shifting from life's resisting you to life's opening up to you with grace and ease, sort of welcoming you. So if you could think about it this way, let's say you, the authentic you, the real you, was meant to be expressed in this particular time and space. That there was an authentic you that was not programmed and shaped, that was formed in your mother's womb that was born when you were born, where you were born, with a specific way for your life to work for you when the authentic you shows up. And somehow you forgot who you were. 
and you got programmed to quiet parts of yourself and to adopt a false foreign entity of the idealized self and start living out of that. And so life hasn't worked for you, but when your authentic self shows up, then all of a sudden the universe, your circumstances, life, the life that you experience outside of you, the life that's objectively other than you, it's like, oh, this is home. <laughs> or, hi, we were hoping you would show up. We've been waiting for you. And it begins to welcome you. And so it's the exact opposite that's true. Where The idealized self, the inner critic and the judge will tell us, if I express myself in this way, life is going to punish me. Well, of course, the idealized self is going to think that way because that's how the idealized self came into being, was through reward and punishment. When in reality, when you show up as your authentic self, life welcomes you. Life receives you. The world becomes a hospitable place instead of a hostile place. And see, we believe if I let that authentic self out, the world's going to be hostile towards me. The exact opposite is true, at least in my experience, at least according to Jung's theories um, and other spiritual traditions and philosophies as well that support this so anyway i hope you enjoyed this speaking of supporting um i enjoy being able to do this i enjoy being able to do this for free uh i am trying to transition out of my day job so that i can create more content so if you would like to support our ministry and what we're doing i have a link in the description below that will take you to our PayPal page, please consider uh, becoming a monthly partner with a monthly donation or one-time donation. doesn't matter the amount. Every little bit helps. Every little bit is appreciated. So thank you for this. I hope this was helpful to you uh, and a blessing to you. Can't wait to go back and read the comments. And uh, I hope that you will grow in real time. <laughs> I hope you were growing in real time right now. And I hope that you will go out and live your best most authentic life. Thank you for watching all the way to the end.